Good morning. Try again. Good morning. All right, there we go. Everybody wake up this morning. Uh, you're going to need to be awake for this sermon. I trust you. Trust me as we read this and as we talk about Judges 19 through 21, uh, it'll be a fun time for all of us, I promise. Uh, but my name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I've been away for a few weeks and uh, just really glad. Uh, to, to be with you this morning. Uh, we'll be concluding our series in the book of Judges. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but getting through this book has felt somewhat hard, uh, honestly, and uh, difficult at times, especially as I have prepared to preach. Uh, one commentator that I read, and I, I agree with what he says, writes this at the end of his commentary, uh, I must confess that I occasionally felt depressed as I wrote this book. One day I said to my wife, I'll be glad when this work is finished. There just isn't much good news in the book of Judges, and that is true. Scott Groves, who uh, preached last week, texted me yesterday to ask how my sermon prep had gone this week, uh, and to which I responded, has involved some serious labor. Some serious uh, labor. I'm just thankful that uh, we have a multitude of preachers so that I uh, don't have to wear the bait, or did not have to bear the weight of preaching through this book alone. And so I'm thankful for, for that. You will see in our, our text today, the book of Judges, just, it just doesn't necessarily end well. Uh, it doesn't necessarily start too great, and it doesn't end too great. So it's kind of a, it kind of uh, starts rigidly, it ends abruptly, and there's seemingly little good news in the middle, but yet... I hope that we will, uh, that we will not leave here uh, without hope. That you'll stick with me through this. I will do my best to lead us to a place that even in the midst of our vile evil, uh, that there is hope for a lost and broken world. So in the, even in the midst of our evil, our vile evil, that there is hope for a lost and broken world. The title of my sermon this morning is called The Callousness of Sin. I had an uncle who... Uh, who um, is a fairly large man, and I don't mean fat, he's just a big guy. He stands about 6'2", but his shoulders are about twice as wide as mine. Uh, and he, is, uh, and he, he spent most of his life as an electrician. And uh, whenever I would see him, uh, I would shake his hand, and I would just remember how big and how rough his, his hands were, because he worked with his hands all the time. And so one summer, I had the opportunity to go and work with him, and, uh, and, and I, as I began to work and as I began to see, I began to get blisters on my hands doing the work as we pulled wire and as we did electrician work and as I used screwdrivers and things of that nature, I just got these blisters all on my hand. I looked at his hands, I'm like, dude, you don't have any blisters and his hands were thick and they were tough and they were calloused over. And I was like, man, how long does it take for your hands to get like that? And he's like, a lifetime. You know, he'd spent all this time just building up these calluses on his hands that were just thick and they were rubbery. And here mine were, they were bleeding and weak and I felt like such a wimp, to be honest with you. But, but it took a little while, but eventually what happened as I, as I continued to pull the wire and as I continued to work as an electrician's helper, my hands began to toughen up and they began to become callous. And no longer did I, did I have these blisters anymore and, and, I, and I built up an, an immunity to being able to, 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 get, these callous, to get these blisters. And that is honestly what sin, if we allow sin to stick around in our lives, if we allow sin to just be there and blister and fester, 
and never go away, the problem is, is it will callous over. Where calluses are a good thing in, electric, in, in, in electrician's work, they are not a good thing in the hearts and the lives of a Christian. Because if we callous over sin, if we become callous to sin in our lives, if we allow little sins to just fester and stay there, eventually they will no longer feel like sin anymore and they will become a regular part of life. And I believe that's what we see over the course of the book of Judges, these sins that just continue over and over and over again to fester and to stay in their lives and to never be rooted out. And eventually just leads to a callousness in our hearts towards sin that it no longer has its full effect on us. And I hope and pray that as we, as we walk through this book, uh, as we walk through these few chapters and as we walk through this book, that you will see that, that sin is deplorable to God. Sin is just a vile evil to God, is deplorable to God. And, and we're going to see some stuff today that's just hard. Honestly, it's just hard to read. It's just hard to understand what's happening in the midst of this, but I'm going to try to walk us through it as best I possibly can. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges 19. We're going to read three chapters together. Uh, it's going to get a bigger picture. I was, only, I was only scheduled to do 19 and 20, but I told Brian, I was like, man, I need to incorporate 21 because it's all one story. And we just figure it out next week. Judges 19. Start here. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant a couple of donkeys, and she, she brought him into her father's house. When the girls saw him, he came with joy to meet him, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate, ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night again, the, the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Hey, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddle donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young men, come, let us draw near to the one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. Uh, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat, sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening, and the man was from, his, from the hill country of Ephraim. 
and he was sojourning in Gibeah. And the men of the place uh, were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. And there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and he gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this, since this man is coming to my house. Do not do this foul thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was this concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going, but there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it, such a thing had, has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel tell us, said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine. I cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all of the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, your people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage uh, that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities uh, to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword 
besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to the battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush against Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were, and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which... Uh, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in, the, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Maera Geba and there came against Gibeah. 10,000 chosen men out of Israel, and the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. And all these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin, because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah, the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that, they, that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from, from Noah, as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. They turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. Five thousand men of them were cut down on the highways, and they were pursued hard to get him. 
and 2,000 of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, all that they found, all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, none of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. They said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the, up to the Lord to Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for, the, for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters or wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribe of Israel that did not come up to the Lord of Mitzvah? And behold, no one had come up from the tribe Jabez-Gilead to the assembly. For when, they, uh, for when the people were mustered, beyond, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 people, 12,000 of their bravest men, and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that, was, that has lain with the male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins, who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin turned at that time, and they gave them the women who had, they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for the wives? For those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. They said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. That a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said behold there is, a yearly, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. Which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem. And south of Lebanon, and they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the vineyards of, of Shiloh come out to dance in, the, uh, dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch them, each man, his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not uh, take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them, give them to them else you would not now be guilty. Um, and the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Will you pray for us? Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this day. Lord, we recognize that this is your word. This is given to us for a reason. Lord, I pray that you would uh, 
help us to understand it, that you would give me wisdom and discernment even as I stand here to, to preach your word faithfully, uh, to, to bring understanding through your spirit to, to help us to walk away from here um, with a better knowledge of what it is that you want, seek to do in us, uh, Lord, that we can learn from this, this difficult text and this difficult, honestly, just difficult book. So Lord, I just pray that your spirit will work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my aim and my goal this morning uh, is this, that you would not darken your hearts with continual sin and dishonorable passions, that you would instead honor God with your life, that you would uh, not darken your hearts with continual sin and dishonorable passions, but instead you would honor God with your life. So in, in, in the story, of, a story of, uh, from Billy Graham that he writes in his autobiography, Just As I Am, Graham himself tells a story of, uh, of having a famous, what we now know as the, the Billy Graham rule. And so it's, uh, and it came about during a two-week crusade in Modesto, California in 1948. The 29-year-old Billy Graham had found himself at a cru- critical juncture. He had been working as an evangelist for a, a large and long-established ministry called Youth for Christ. But he was beginning to, to launch out on his own to begin a, a new work as an independent evangelist. And he and his team felt the weight of the public scrutiny they'd be under. And so they, they longed not to become or even appear to be what characterized some evangelist in that day. Um, and so what, what they had heard and they shared would hear share of stories and personally knew evangelists whose success became devastating. Such men slid from one small degree of compromise to their ne- um, one degree of compromise to the next in their desires for money, power, illicit sex, all under the cloak of Christian ministry and seeming fruitfulness. So in the fall of 1948, as Graham contemplated leaving the security of a respected and a rooted ministry to found his own evangelistic association, he saw an imposing obstacle on the horizon. The recurring problems many evangelists seemed to have was the poor image of so-called mass evangelism had in the eyes of the people. Because the only thing they had seen was evangelists that would come and they would preach and they would they would tell the gospel story and they would ask people to respond in kind and they would have all these people that yet themselves were men of low character. But Graham didn't want to do that. So Graham says these resolutions are among the four founders of, of uh, the evangelistic society that he founded did not mark a radical departure for us because we had always held these principles. We just wanted to write them down so that we would remember them and they would become the Modesto Manifesto is what they would call it. So what they did, four things that they decided to do together. First, the temptation to wring as much money as possible, uh, they would renounce out of the audience. The second thing that they decided to do is that when they traveled, this was what was called the, the Graham Rule, and being away from their home, they decided, he writes, Graham writes, that we knew of evangelists who had fallen into immorality while separated from their families by travel. So we pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would even have the appearance of compromise or suspicion. So from that day on, I did not travel 
meet or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. This was setting uh, themselves up not towards dishonor of sin, but towards the honor of honoring Christ. The third thing that they sought to do was to fight against pride. They knew that, that they would have the ability to talk against churches, talk against those who are gathered in churches. And they were set to avoid any anti-church or in, any anti-clergy attitude. That was their third manifesto. The third resolution, the fourth resolution was um, that they would um, not exaggerate their stories or they would not claim higher attendance numbers than they really had. In other words, we committed ourselves to integrity in our publicity and our reporting. This is what it means to set your heart towards something that is honoring God with your life. So what did, what did Billy Graham and his associates see? They saw that there would be a, a, a roadblock ahead if they did not set their hearts to, to study the Word, to set their hearts to do the Word, to teach the Word. But in so doing, they knew if they didn't set their hearts to honor the Lord with their life, that they would have a tendency to fall into sin. They would have a tendency to, to pursue money and sex and all these things instead of what honors God. And so I tell you that story because I want you to understand that as, as, we, as we think about judges, and as we think about this honoring lives, we will see that, that not, many, not, not much happens here in 19 through 21 that seems really honorable. There's, lives are, are not honorable that we see here. And three times the question is asked, how did this evil happen? What evil has taken place among us? Why has this happened in Israel? Three different times that question is asked in three different ways. Well, what has happened is there's a continual sin that has led to a callousness of heart. There's a continual ongoing sin that has led to a callousness of heart where they can't even recognize their own sinful idolatry and passions. So as I, as I read this, and as I, as, I, as I think about this, I believe that as we think about the continual sin that leads to callousness of heart, that in this passage it manifests itself in a few different ways. The first way it manifests itself is it creates a focus on self and not others. That as we continually walk in sin and our hearts become callousness, that our focus becomes less on the self-giving of our lives and more towards our own self-seeking and preservation. So what happens is, as we look at this, we see a man who's a Levite. A Levite in that day was set apart. He was supposed to be a teacher of the law. He was a man who was supposed to have high character, to lead the people in some of the and some of the rules as a priest. He takes for himself a concubine. A concubine was, uh, was viewed as second class citizen. They were, they were a lawful wife. They, were, they, could, they could eat the food. They could live in the house. That was all they had privilege to. And the man could have sex with them anytime he wanted to. That was, that was what a concubine was for. They were the one of some of the lowest in society. 
And so we, we see that, that he, he, he seemingly, in verse 3, seems to be pursuing her. Seems to have some, some, some thoughtfulness, some kindness to him. She has, she has been unfaithful to him, so she goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. Then in 19, verse 3, he, he goes and he, 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 I'm going to go and I'm going to speak kindly to her and I'm going I'm to bring her back. And this is a stand-up guy. And then we see he goes to her father and he eats and he drinks and he is merry with him. And then he leaves. And they go into and they go and spend the night in the and instead of staying in uh, in in Jebus, they go or the which is Jerusalem. They decide no, we're going to go past this full of a city of of foreigners who don't belong to Israel. So we're going to go to Gibeah. Seems like a a good safe place for us. And so they go into Gibeah, and they and what the way it worked was you would go into the square. And true hospitality of the people in that time, there was no. Uh, there was no Hilton Inn, there was no Hilton Garden Inn, there was no uh, um, Ramada Inn, whatever, whatever your hotel of choice, that wasn't there. So they would go in, what you would do is you would go into the center square and somebody would come and the hospitable nature of the people, they would bring you into their home. Well, the first red flag that we should see here is that nobody does that. Matter of fact, it's a guy from Ephraim who comes and who is sojourning in that area. So in their, in their self-seeking, in, in knowing who the people are, they don't come and show hospitality anymore. But yet a foreigner, a sojourner, comes and he brings them into his house. And then we see in verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, and there was the, all of a sudden these worthless men, they surround the house, and they beat on the door and and bring out the man. There's a new man here. Bring him out that we may know him. And, it, and, and the people, the man doesn't come out. The owner of the house doesn't come out. And instead, he says, hey, how about my daughter? How, how about the concubine that's staying in my house? See, when we create this focus on self, when we let sin just continually callous our hearts, our thoughts, our, our, our mind is skewed. We become callous to the ways of, of what it means to honor God with our lives. We become callous to, to what God is, is seeking of us. And we see this in no better place than in Romans that was read for us. God gives us the continual sin. God will give us over to our debased minds. And that is obviously what's happened here in Gibeah. That they were willing to give up his virgin. That a man was willing to give up his virgin daughter. And he was willing to give up a concubine who was staying in his house. Instead of themselves. This continual sin creates a focus on self-preservation. You see it here. But it, what we do is we read this and we go, man, this is a terrible story. But we don't know how to put ourselves in the story. 
my question is this. Where are the men who desire, desire to lead spiritually? Where are the men who care for the marginalized in our society? Men who care for their wives and their children and less about their own interests. Where are these men? You should ask the question, am I that man? That I, I care to, 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 to glorify and honor God with my own life and in so doing that, that, that my wife and my kids would see this. These men were cared only about themselves, only about their self-preservation. This evil happened because the men wouldn't take care of their own lives in order to glorify and honor God with, with their lives and help the others to do the same. But we shouldn't be surprised. We have a document that we use here that's in our membership book called, called the Danvers um, Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm just going to read a little bit from it for you. It says this, The fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. We can gather that, right? In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. That I must serve my husband or he must be greater than I. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility. And inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. But the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testament also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and the covenant community. The redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortion introduced by the curse. In the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership. They should grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessing of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted only to men. We should love and care for our wives. That's what I want you to take here. We should love and care for our children. This is your authority in the household, husbands. You should not treat your wife or other women less than. Matter of fact, you're called to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, but just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Let each one of you love his wife as 
himself. The problem throughout the book of Judges is a lack of a lack of the pursuit of what's holy. A lack of pursuit of what honors God. A lack of men who step up outside of God's calling who are judges to lead their families. People who are, who are supposed to be set apart to glorify and honor God instead are acting as Christian atheists. Those who believe and know God yet want nothing to do with what it means to honor and glorify Him. And if you don't believe me, look at, look at Romans 1 that we read earlier. You don't have to turn there. Verse 12, though they know God's righteousness, though they know God's righteous decree, right? That's all of us. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, this story here in Judges chapter 19 is very similar to a story that happens in Genesis chapter 19. Where Lot entertains angels. Two angels that come and live in his house. And worthless fellows come and knock on his door. And were it not for the angels blinding the people that were out there, they would have done the same thing that these people do here. So our tendency is this. Our tendency is to believe that my sin is not that bad. My sin is is not that bad. That our society that we live in today is not nearly as bad as that one, yet it is. Like we still tend to oppress those who are marginalized. We still tend to think of women as the weaker vessel. We still tend to think that there are superior races over other races. We still, as society still thinks that it's okay to abort babies and use their body parts. As they see fit. How far have we come? Sin is sin. It is reckless. It is vile. And I want you to know it sets you apart from a holy, loving, and gracious, and merciful God. That our propensity to let sin just sit there and fester. Will cause callous hearts that want nothing but. To fulfill my own selfish desires. That is one way it manifests itself. Is that we will fulfill our own selfish desires. Even in, even in chapter 21. Look with me in chapter 21. The, the, the men of Israel, they come to Bethel. And they lift up their voices and they weep before God. Alright, so, so we got to solve this problem. We killed everybody but 600 men. Now there's no women to, to help the, the, the tribe of Benjamin to succeed and to continue on. So what are we going to do? How are we going to preserve the Benjaminites? Let's come up with a plan. Let's go and figure out who didn't go to war. We'll go and kill everybody there. And even it says in in chapter uh, 10, I mean in chapter 21, verse 10, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the children. 
That's how we'll solve the problem. We'll go and kill all these Gileadites. And we'll take the 400 virgins. And then not only that, we're going to go, we don't have enough. They've only got 400, we've got 600 men. Where, how are we going to fulfill the other 200? Well, there's this thing, this yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh that only involves women. So what we'll do is, what we'll do is we'll, we'll come up and as they come out to dance in the dances, we will come out of the vineyards and snatch each man and his wife. That's called kidnapping. We'll go and kidnap wives. You, do you see the flaw in this? You see the flaw in our thinking when we just let sin just sit there? We just let sin reside in our lives? We will come up with a number of ways that we can satisfy solutions outside of what it means to honor, honor God and honor the Lord with our lives. We will seek to serve ourselves over others. The second thing that we will do is we will create and have a stubborn response towards repentance. Look at chapter 20, verse 12. Tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from them, uh, from Israel. What was the response? Not repentance, not humility. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. See, we seek to somebody. Have you ever had someone come and confront you in your sin? You ever had just a brother or a sister that you just you know they love you? They're just trying to tell you for your good. And they, they come to you with their with the sin that they think they see in you. And you're just like, that's not true. That's not me. I'm not guilty of that sin. When when the callousness of sin takes takes its root. We are prone to be stubborn in our response towards that sin. Or even towards repentance. Even towards listening to our brother or sister who may confront us in this sin. And that was the problem with the Benjaminites. They had an opportunity to repent, to bring out the worthless fellows, but they were so entrenched of their tribal community that they weren't willing to repent of their sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe you justify your sin because it doesn't hurt anyone else. This is my sin. It's not hurting anybody else. What's the problem? I can tell you that if you read Romans 1, you would exchange the glory of the immortal God for other things in this life. That you will set your heart on, a, on something, and you will be stubborn in your response towards even giving way to repentance and turning away from that sin. The third and the last thing that it does, as we think about the continual, continual sin leading to callousness of heart, it's going to bring forth God's wrath. 
brings forth judgment. Romans 1 chapter, I mean Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is what happened here with the Benjaminites. They suppressed what was right, what was true, what was holy. They replaced the truth of God for a lie and sin. We are not above it. For those of us who who do not know Christ this morning, for those of us who have not put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will suffer the wrath of God because we have suppressed the truth. We have believed a lie. We don't need Christ. We don't need God. We don't need His perfect life live for us. We don't need His sacrificial death to pay for the penalty of our sin. We don't need His resurrection because I can hope in myself. Where is hope in this? If you remember kind of the overarching theme of the book of Judges is that of sinful idolatry. That of sinful idolatry where there was a lack of trust in God's covenant faithfulness. But what are we called to do? That in the midst of our own sinful idolatry, all those things that we place before God, that we would trust God's covenant faithfulness for eternal, eternal redemption. God would redeem us even in the midst of our sin. That Christ would, would save us. So the, 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 the good news here and the hope for us here is not just the book of Judges. It's what comes after Judges in the book of Ruth. So Judges chapter 17 picks up where about Ruth 1 begins. Something happens in Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And that's how the book begins. That Ruth, something redeemable is happening in the time of Judges. That's something amazing that God's covenant faithfulness is happening even in the time of Judges. Where we are introduced to the kinsman redeemer. And then we get to the end of Ruth chapter 4. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. God is sending His one and only Son through the line of David from Ruth. We get to read about in the book of Ruth. To come into this world as God made flesh, God incarnate who would live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, 
and be raised on the third day. And our hope, our hope is not in this sinful world. Our hope is not in a God who's just out there. Our hope is in a God who came into this world. And his name is Jesus. And that by faith, if you believe in him, if you put your hope and your trust in him, that you too will be saved. That is our hope. That is the good news out of all of this. That even in our most vilest of sin, that and as, as, as wicked and as bad as this seems, that Jesus would come and pay an even harsher punishment as an, as an innocent man. As an innocent man for the guilty. That is us. God, God, that Christ would suffer the wrath that we deserve. That we, he paid a debt that we could never pay. And that God would intercede for us. For a sinful and vile generation. That our hope is in him. As we read passages like this, it points us to an all-knowing, all-loving, all-forgiving, all-merciful Savior found in Christ. Do you trust Him? Do you have hope in Him? Do you believe in Him? I pray that you do. I pray that, that as you do, especially you fathers, see, these were men of war. They were trained warriors. There's no doubt that they were they stood out among others. But where they needed to stick out the most, they were absent, which is in their spiritual lives. How are you how are you men leading your wives? How are you loving your children? What idolatrous things are standing in between you and God and your family? What ways are you leading your wives? Are you washing her with the word? What ways are you, are you, are you teaching your children to, to, to fear God? To walk in the newness of life. I pray that you, would, that you would take this, that you would seek not to darken your hearts by continual sin. That you would honor God with your life. Jesus, thank you for your word. We know this is heavy. This is hard to absorb. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Pray that you would help us to have hope in it, to find grace and mercy found by God, that even in the midst of this uh, that we see in Genesis 19, where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, yet uh, we see that he does not destroy Benjaminites, even in his mercy and his grace, he doesn't destroy them, even though they deserve to be destroyed, yet us as well. Lord, you could destroy us in a moment, yet by your grace you sustain us, yet by your grace you help us to believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.